This podcast is brought to you by Athene. As the world changes, so does perspective. Is the sun setting on a bull market or is dawn breaking on opportunity? As a leading provider of fixed annuities, Athene was built for times like these. Working together, the future couldn't be brighter. Athene, driven to do more. I'm Steve Forbes, and this is What's Ahead. Today, I sit down with Shep and Ian Murray, brothers who left their corporate jobs to found the wildly successful clothing brand, Vineyard Vines. We talk about their brand philosophy and how taking big risks can sometimes lead to big rewards. But first, what's ahead? Profits get a bad rap especially this election season. Presidential candidate Joe Biden and his fellow Democrats want to tax them much more. Profits are portrayed as coming at the expense of better wages for workers and lower prices for consumers. They supposedly benefit the rich at the expense of the poor. Critics cry, people before profits. In a free market, this is nonsense. Profits fuel the economy. They provide the money to start new businesses and expand existing ones. Money is also needed to replace or maintain equipment, software, and other items needed to run an enterprise. Profits tell us how well a company is doing. That obviously affects the entity's stock price. So does the prospect of future profits. Over 100 million people have 401ks and IRAs. The better stocks do, the more money they will have for retirement. Profits tell producers what people desire and what they don't. Similarly, investors can better gauge where they might best invest their funds. What detractors don't grasp is that in a dynamic economy, capital is constantly being destroyed as old entities and products fall by the wayside. In 1993, for instance, the Boston Globe newspaper was sold to the New York Times for $1.1 billion. Thanks to the rise of the internet, the paper was sold 20 years later for a pitiful $70 million. Profits replace destroyed capital and provide the wherewithal to create the new and better. Profits come only after workers, suppliers, and lenders are paid. Joe Biden wants to boost taxes on profits by 33%. That shrinks resources available to maintain and grow businesses, and it damages the creation of new enterprises. All this hurts job creation and the possibility of higher wages. With opportunities thus smothered, those with the least are hurt the most. And now, my conversation with Shep and Ian Murray. Our two special guests today are the co-founders, co-CEOs, co-owners of the iconic Vineyard Vines. I like them. I give a toast to them in their glass with my uh, Diet Coke, Vineyard Vines. They're iconic neckties. We've used them at Forbes for special occasions. And I'm wearing a shirt. So if it's a suck up, yes, it is from a happy fan. Before getting into your amazing story of how you created this company and then your insights on where the retailing industry is going, you, of course, started out with an $8,000 advance and cash advances from credit cards. Not so long ago, you're valued at a billion dollars. You have hundreds of millions of dollars of sales. You showed you are not a flash in the pan. You weren't just a regional phenomenon or generational. You're now national and you're multi-generational, which is phenomenal and enduring. 
your parents were travel writers, so as kids you got to go to some cool places, but you learned something very important at those resorts. You saw what it took to make them work, the excruciating detail to make these places work. Describe how that influenced you and uh, how it uh, held you in good stead when you decided to uh, go out on your own, what it took. And also explain the word hospitality. Uh, Danny Meyer, the great uh, New York restaurateur, says his business, restaurants, is not about food, but ultimately hospitality. First of all, thank you, Stephen. Great seeing you again. Not only do we learn from our parents, we learn from you. You know, I think our relationship over the past two decades uh, has been remarkable. And what we learned from you and your family and your organization has been really, really amazing. I think you said it right. We're not in the retail business, we're in the hospitality business. Danny Meyer actually just spoke at our company summit last year. And at the end of the day, it's really about anticipating the customer's needs, you know, being kind and treating people the way they want to be treated. It's a very, very simple recipe. Our job is to make sure that people feel great and have that every day should feel this good experience or mantra, which is our company tagline. You know, uh, Echo Chef, thank you for having us. It's it's great to see you and, and be with you virtually. Uh, when you talk about hospitality, one thing that we saw uh, over 20 years ago when we started our business is we were fortunate enough to work with a lot of multi-generational family businesses. And we really looked up to them uh, and aspired to be like them. There are a whole bunch of retailers. You guys are a great example of a multifamily, multi-generational business. And when you think about hospitality, the one thing we learned that really stuck with us and still does is that to be truly hospitable, you have to make people feel welcome. But if you're the host, you have to be ready and available at any time to do any job that no job is too small, that it's sort of an all hands on deck mentality. And so we've tried to keep that throughout our organization for everybody, because we remember being, you know, eating in the kitchens in these hotels and getting there and seeing the manager walk by uh, down a hallway and see a stain and get down on their hands and knees and clean it right then and there. And that just left a real strong visual in our point that it takes everybody doing pretty much everything to keep these places humming and, and make it look easy. Don't complain about it. Just do your work, have fun doing it, and other people will want to be around and be a part of it. You know, we always say we work hard to make it look easy. And to Ian's point, when we go into a store or when we go online or we do anything, you know, we're looking in the back stock room. We're looking in the bathroom. We're looking to see if our team is dusted above the tie wall. And to Ian's point, like it's, it's the little things that make a very, very big difference. And so that's been our focus. So uh, let's get to your uh, legendary story, an inspiring one. When uh, you were in your 20s, you had uh, gotten out of college. You were still living home with uh, your parents. And uh, you uh, had this aspiration, but you were not happy with your jobs. I think it was early 1998. You sort of uh, decided you're going to do something. Took out every credit card you could to have access to uh, cash to get uh, that startup capital. Describe the, uh, I think it was uh, you, Shep, the precipitating event, I think in June of 1998, that finally got you uh, to jump in what could have been uh, very cold water. Describe that day and uh, your parents' uh, rather uh, shocked reaction that night when you came home and said what you had done. <laughs> so I had my review at work. I was working at an ad agency on Madison Avenue, and they told me to think inside the box 
And I was like, think inside the box. That's not what we wanted to do. And so I called Ian and I said, you know, I think I'm going to quit. He said, okay. And then I went and I quit and he didn't believe that I quit. And um, he quit five minutes later. So we got on the train, got on the bar car, had a couple of drinks on the way home, told our parents that we quit and um, they were furious at us. And ever since then, we haven't looked back. We've never been afraid to take risks. They, they, they begged you to take the go back and beg for forgiveness, right? <laughs> they they certainly did. And I think at that point in our careers, we had nothing to lose. And we had passion and we believed in what we were doing. And so the idea was to make neckties with icons of the good life, like the one that you're holding that we did uh, for your, your family. And the idea was to make people, you know, feel good and express themselves. And so, you know, whether it was you went to the vineyard or Nantucket, or you liked blue fishing or striped bass or martini and cigar or lacrosse, it was, it seemed to be universally liked that people had passions and that the idea was to bring your relaxed state of mind with you whenever a tie was necessary. So why neckties? I know uh, you've said uh, you didn't have to worry about sizing, but what, uh, what drew you to uh, neckties to start this thing? One thing Shep noticed early on, and, and I did too, he had a couple of nice ties, silk printed Hermes Ferragamo type motif. And he noticed very quickly that if he dressed like the CEOs did, they would sort of notice him a little bit more. And we noticed really quickly, I had one suit from Brooks Brothers that I got at the outlet. And that if, you know, if I wore a nice tie, people would say, you look nice. If I didn't, they wouldn't say anything, but it was the same suit and the same shirt. So we very quickly noticed that a tie said something about you more so than anything else. And so it was sort of the apparel version of uh, the cover of a book. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so we were having trouble finding ties with motifs that we really liked. Like Shep said, you know, we like to fish and sail and play golf and travel and, and do all those types of things. And so we decided to design ties, specifically starting from Martha's Vineyard very soon after Nantucket. So people who were coming up on the weekends then had to go back and wear a suit Monday morning they could wear our tie with a street sign of Martha's Vineyard or a map of Nantucket. You know, it was like wearing a T-shirt, but they could wear it to work and feel great about it. And you, in business, you're always going to have crises. You're always going to have mistakes. And the key is how you respond early on. Tell us the story about the 4th of July, where suddenly you discovered you're selling ties, but you forgot to bring them up <laughs> and, and what you did to remedy it. It was uh, it was our very first day of business, and I was up on Martha's Vineyard. Shep was still down in Connecticut uh, or New York, and we had pre-sold the day before. We were too nervous to tell people, you know, in advance of our idea. We thought they would steal their idea. So Friday before the Fourth of July, which was, I believe, a Saturday that year, we went down to a couple of stores and pre-sold them and guaranteed that they'd be there on their doorstep the next morning. When Shep arrived to Martha's Vineyard, he had taken one of the last ferries of the day. Uh, we unloaded the inventory and realized that we, what, you know, what we thought was our prime tie, a, a street sign tie in, in the color red, was not in the car. So in the middle of the night, we had a, a friend go get the ties from the house and drive them to the airport. But you had to get a pilot too. To yeah, our, our neighbor across the street worked for the FAA and had a small Cessna. So I think we spent about $400 in his fuel charges and he flew back in the middle of the night to get the ties, landed back on Martha's Vineyard in the hours of dawn. We tagged them all and delivered them by 9 a.m. and never said a word. 
It's always about working hard to make it look easy and delivering on the customer promise and the brand promise. And uh, improvising, Bill Clinton visited the vineyard. You didn't get to see the president, but you did get on the evening news, which was good marketing. Tell us about that. It's a great story. Uh, I was on the vineyard and I think Shep was off island and he called me, said there's all sorts of news at the Egertown Elementary School, which was the press headquarters, something about a tie that Monica Lewinsky gave the president and he wore the day he testified or something to that extent, like it was a secret signal. So there was no news that day. So that became the news. And we went down there and I draped all the ties over me and kind of put my arms out like this and walked around like I was a street vendor. <laughs> People thought I was crazy and they asked me what I was doing. And I said, I understand that the president likes wearing neckties that, you know, from, from, from younger people. And I'm an entrepreneur in Martha's Vineyard. We started a company called Vineyard Vines and we made all the national news networks for the six o'clock news or six thirty news that night, which was great. And what was really fun about it is we did that and we didn't spend a dime on it. So we knew very early on the power of the press and that, um, you don't have to spend money to get the word out there. You can do interesting, creative things that you know resonate with people, uh, and that has always been our goal. That you know, if you're doing something that's worth sharing, you don't need to pay people to talk about it. You can just do it. Word of mouth, and uh, you uh, learn too that yes, you can have a nice product, but how it is presented helps create a feeling. Describe your uh, epiphanies on packaging. I think you know it, what we want to do is create a great experience for our customer, and we know that people really appreciate details. And so, when you walk into our stores, hopefully you're greeted with a friendly person. The cash wrap is usually a—it's uh, actually a boat that's made in the Carolinas by a sport fishing company called Jarrett Bay. The fixtures are all designed by Ian and me, and Ian and I have final say on all the clothing. And so you take a great product, you take a great message, you take a great service and a smile and then a great presentation. And that's the key to success in hospitality or retail. We used to say that experience is what you get when you don't get what you want. And so we had this you know, great experience working in the city, but we didn't like it. And so what we wanted to do is to kind of turn that quote upside down once we started Vineyard Finds and make sure that the experience that our customer got was exactly what they wanted. Now, in terms of uh, growth, uh, you did things a little differently. Yes, you were selling directly, but uh, you were early going online. You obviously relied very heavily on uh, catalogs. I think uh, your first website cost $500. You really pushed on that before you went into uh, creating stores. Describe your strategy on that, how, how you uh, really did it, what the reverse of a lot of retailers have done. I mean, I think what, what we decided to do from day one was to make our business really easy for customers. We always talked about, you know, whether they bought it from a store, they bought it uh, from home, or they bought it from our, our mail order catalog, that it didn't matter to us how they got our product. We wanted them to get it the easiest way possible. And because we started regionally up in the Northeast and so many people traveled to Martha's Vineyard or the Cape or Nantucket, and then they went back to their hometown, it was really the only way to service our customers. So 20 years ago, we built a business that was omni-channel, not really knowing 
that that word even existed back then. Um, but that was really key to our success. So as the world shifted to online from brick and mortar, we already were established and we had infrastructure and we were designed from that way from, from day one. And so aside from being omnichannel, we also on every single hang tag of our tie had the website. And at the time we didn't have enough money uh, for models. So we were using our friends. And I think you were a model at one point. Um, yes, uh, but I kept my day job. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, so omni-channel and reality TV or, or social media was what we were doing 20-something years ago. We just didn't know that. And one, one of the things you did in terms of uh, expansion, uh, sometimes entrepreneurs get way ahead of themselves, but you seem to have the discipline where you'd expand product by product, that you weren't going to get in a lot of debt. You weren't going to uh, hope the next season would bail you out. Describe your strategy of expansion and that kind of discipline so that you didn't end up uh, losing control. So one of our mentors was a guy, his name was Ira Niemark. And he was, you know, the top dog at Bergdorf Goodman. And he dressed everyone from Lady Di to Prince Charles to all the rock and roll stars, everybody, all the dignitaries. And he sat us down one day and he said, you are not allowed to expand your category of ties until you do X million dollars. And so we kind of took that advice and we expanded niche by niche. And um, it was very, very good, simple, sound advice. You know, kind of the idea of doing one thing and doing it well. And then we would expand to a new category. How did you uh, get the the whale, the colors, and uh, your motto? Well, first of all, the, early on at, at Young Rubicon um, Advertising, where Shep was working, he befriended uh, the guys who, some really great uh, advertising people who came up with the Just Do It for Nike. And they were sort of like whispering in our ears some ideas and sort of who is the customer you want. And back then, Nantucket Reds, the pink shorts was sort of a big thing that a lot of people would wear with a faded navy uh, shirt. And so pink and, and navy became the colors very quickly. And then as we started to make clothing, we knew that we needed an icon. And as we were kids, our father used to carve wooden whales uh, like you see hanging over the doors in Nantucket. And, and there was always a whale over our door of our house. And so we thought, well, a whale would be great. There's no way that it's available, but we did all sorts of searches and nobody had trademarked the whale for use as a logo for apparel. You made it a happy whale. Yes, we made it a pink and and navy happy whale. And then we landed on uh, Every Day Should Feel This Good sometime after that. Uh, Again, working sort of with our same friends, talking about what we wanted people to feel. What was the emotion? that Vineyard Vines could bring to the whole family? And what was the um, way of life, the motto, the, the mantra that we could measure up against everything we do? And so whether it's a, a photograph of a customer, it's a product, it's just how you feel. Um, we thought that every day should feel this good, could really measure up to you know the best moments in your life. And if Vineyard Vines could be a part of that, um, you know, we thought we were doing something right. So uh, you're expanding uh, your partner's you're also brothers. That's nice, but we all know about Cain and Abel. Early on, you decided that uh, to prevent future problems, you were going to have a written operating agreement of some sort to make sure uh, this thing didn't bust up over emotion. Describe the agreement and how you decided to divide responsibilities 
so you didn't get rivalries of as kids or whatever getting in the way of uh, running the business. Sure, I mean, I, I think we, um, we we learned early on uh, as soon as we had just a little bit of success, a little bit of momentum, that it was important to. Uh, button ourselves up and work with the best partners we could uh, and get great advice. And so we have an operating agreement that, you know, some of the mechanics and the particulars of it, Steve, I honestly don't remember because it hasn't been touched on in so long. But the idea is basically that uh, that it's fair and that, that, you know, we can't stick each other with things that are, you know, uncomfortable or, or not nice. And, but I think we haven't gotten to that point ever, even when we've had disagreements because we try to remember why we started doing this in the first place. I mean, it sounds like a kind of a cliche thing, but we started it because we didn't like going to work for other people. We wanted to create a brand that made people feel great. And so even when things get tense and things get tough, you know, I think we go back to thinking about why we're doing it in the first place and what really matters. You know, in terms of dividing authority, we've tried it a handful of different ways. Um, it sort of naturally ebbs and flows depending on to some extent, what, what phase of life we're in, you know, how old our children are, whether we were married or not married and, you know, what, what interests we had. So the responsibilities evolve? They, they do. And, and also like we've been doing it now for quite a while and that we have a really great team. So, you know, Shep always say, you know, a really good CEO is not necessary because the team can do it. We can just come in and help provide overarching direction, try and keep things within the brand uh, guardrails but they should be competent to uh, to really run run the business. Our job is to push it forward and, and innovate and evolve. And I think the other thing too is that Ian and I are brothers and while we've shared an office for the last 22 years and we live down the street from each other, we are different people and we are passionate about different things and we have differing opinions. But you know, usually the best decisions we made are a result of compromise. And, and we've worked really, really hard and we've gotten much better at that. And you know, the things that we ever disagree about are not so much business things, it's, it's more being brothers. And we, you know, we've had a lot of success and a lot of hardships. We lost you know, our folks and, and some other family members uh, through this time. And um, you, know, you, you realize what's important. And you know, Ian and I don't fight about the things that you would think you know, business partners would fight about. It's, at the end of the day, we're always going to be brothers. And when we stop having fun, we'll stop doing this. This uh, gets to the culture. So uh, what do you look for and how do you uh, try to create and nurture the kind of culture so you, if you're not there, it ain't going to suddenly change overnight? It's really about like, how does that person make you feel? Like, do you want to work with that person? Do you think that person will have good ideas? Do you think that person will treat other people well? and represent our brand well? And do we want to, you know, eat a meal with that person? You know, we look for the the passion and the personality and the entrepreneurial spirit. Those are the things that Ian and I look for. And then sometimes, you know, human resources will come and say, well, you know, that person doesn't know how to do the job we need to get done. And so there has to be a balance between the two. Uh, you know, th there's no doubt that uh, maintaining growth and maintaining culture simultaneously can be very challenging because as we've grown over the years, we've had periods of time where we hired pretty rapidly because we just needed the jobs done. And uh, you sort of then catch your breath at certain stages throughout the, the growth of the years to see who were just people who were just doing their job and who are people who are actually adding to the culture. 
in some situations, those people would sort of, you know, opt out or they'd go on to their next thing because they're really just about punching in, punching out. We look for people who want to do way more than their job. Like Shep said, they're entrepreneur, they're hungry, and they have a can-do attitude because, you know, any entrepreneurial organization or any place, you know, if you do your job, you get to keep it. But if you do more than your job, you get to grow. And so as the organization's gotten bigger, we spent a lot of time investing in growing our team, not the, not the number of people, but like growing their skill sets and giving them opportunities to grow. Because the last thing we would want to be is a place where people start their careers, you know, and then go on to, to be someplace else. We've got a lot of tenured folks uh, who've been with us a long time. And, uh, you know, we're still attracting really great uh, talent as well. And people seem to respond and, and act the way you treat them. So if we give them trust and respect, they'll, they'll do the same thing for us. Being able to trust people is, I think, is a very, very hard thing, especially, you know, when you're an entrepreneur and, and you know, get caught up in the minutiae. But um, the reality is, is that we can't run 100 stores, just the two of us. Or an online business, we need a team that we trust, and we've got that team. And these are people's lives, and they want to they want to do you know feel proud of the work that they do as well. And so we're really proud and appreciative of our team. Going into uh, developing a number of your own stores, as well as what you are doing online and with the traditional retailers, not to mention country clubs and some particular retailers that would uh, be ripe for your kind of product. How do you take the plunge where you're going to really go? You might say wholesale into a retailing. You know, I, we we took a, a really honest approach to them. We decided pretty early on, as our brand began in popularity, that we didn't want to have too big a footprint, particularly in the smaller stores. We tried never to be more than forty percent of someone's assortment. So if we did open a store, we wouldn't put them out of business. And then what happened was there's a great family. Um, based in Connecticut, but they have stores out throughout the country, the Mitchell family. We partnered with them for a while. Yeah, we, we, were, we were very honest with them. We said, you know, we really have this vision of creating a, you know, our, our world where people could walk in and, and it could be our brand. And uh, we're not feeling like we can do that properly in somebody else's environment, whether it's a mom and pop store or a Nordstrom or somewhere in between. And they said, well, then how can we help you? Let's do it. You know, you guys, you guys have a, a great vision. You have a great product and you got a lot of opportunity. And, you know, we know how to operate stores. Let's do it together. And so that was, that really spoke to the character that they had um, and also to the work that we had done to that point that they wanted to help us. They wanted to be a part of it. Um, and so we partnered with them. We opened our first, well, before we did that, we opened a small store in Martha's Vineyard that we think did a million dollars in sales and cost us like $1.3 million to operate. So we knew that you know, we weren't doing everything right. And, <laughs> and, uh, if we, if we had, if we had a hundred of those, we'd be in, in, in big trouble. So, uh, the Mitchells, uh, work with us. We opened six, you know, significant stores together, learned a ton from them. Even before we opened the stores, we used to hang around their stores and, and learn. And then, um, about 15 years ago, um, the financial crisis and, and the world sort of fell apart and their core business was really their, the backbone of their business. And they were spending a disproportionate amount of time on our business. 
And so it was an opportunity for us to, uh, to, to buy the, their portion of the partnership from the retail back. And, um, you know, we, we evolved pretty rapidly uh, from the systems that they had used, which were terrific. You know, we, we kept pushing forward with the times and we started layering in about probably 20 stores a year for like maybe three, four years. What we also found, and, and this is, you know, a page out of the Ralph Lauren book, is when Ralph Lauren opened the mansion, uh, Bloomingdale's was really upset. But all it did was raise, raise the bar of the business in Bloomingdale's too. It, it created more brand equity, more people knew about it, more people wanted a piece of it. And so we found when we open stores in a town and there's already a store there that carries it, not always, but most of the time, their business increases too. And we're also thoughtful about our, um, our assortment to make sure that we're not offering the same thing, that there's reasons to go to both places. So we don't always get it right. But for the most part, we've had positive interactions and, and we've had support from our, our fellow retailers. Now, in expanding the brand, you've done uh, seemingly unique things like becoming the official style for the America's Cup, the Kentucky Derby, Red Sox, we'll forgive you that, we Yankee fans, Fenway Park. But uh, describe what that means and how you uh, came onto that as a way of uh, expanding the recognition and the uh, appeal of the brand. Sure. I mean, it, it goes back to, you know, hitching our wagon to American institutions, you know, whether it was Forbes Media Company or some other like wonderful re- retailers that we worked with. We thought that if, um, first of all, people are passionate about things like the Kentucky Derby, people are passionate about the America's Cup. And, and so we decided that uh, if we could be the official style of the Kentucky Derby, um, and again, there was no such thing as official style before. It was something that we sort of invented. Um, and we saw the Derby as being really the intersection of sports and fashion because the Derby is so much about how you look. Most people don't even pay attention to the horse race. It's, it's three days of activities for two minutes of action and half the people can't even see. So we, we learned quickly that the Kentucky Derby and the America's Cup are the two oldest trophies, you know, in, in modern sports. And to be associated with these institutions was really uh, incredible. We also, like it or not, um, working with Fenway Park, another institution, an incredible place, uh, and a great, great team to, um, to, you know, just just good people to work with, and the New England Patriots. Although, and just to add to that, Steve, we. We enjoyed our time going to Yankee games with you. Yeah. It was really fun. Hope to do that again. Someday we can do it again, maybe. Yeah, let's do it. Well, you know, as, as we've gotten closer to the um, to, to a little bit of this stuff, we, we realized that the Yankees organization and the Red Sox organization work well together because really they're also in the hospitality business. They want to make sure that their fans have a great time, that when they show up to the park, whichever place it is, uh, that, they're, that, that people enjoy it and that it's an American pastime. So it's been fun. And, and we also are working um, with, uh, you know, professional golf, which has been fun. And we partnered with, um, you know, we make merchandise for all, all the majors and, you know, most of the, the best clubs in the country. But we also did a small offshoot with Jim Nance, who's sort of the most trusted name in sports and in golf. So he, he was who we work with uh, on that. So we, we try to cover our bases. So it all comes back, layers back to every day should feel this good. If that's a, at a ball game, on a sailboat, you know, watching a horse run or, you know, striking golf ball, whatever it is, we want to be, want Vineyard Vines to be a part of that experience with you. When you become a large company, how do you uh, keep from going stale? Fashion can be very fickle, as you well know. How do you stay the same and stay fresh, so to speak? 
I think one of the things that we really put, Ian, Ian talked about uh, institutions, you know, whether it's the Yankees, the Red Sox, but it's also places, you know, we love going to, you know, whether it's the Breakers in Palm Beach, 21 Club in New York City, uh, the Greenbrier, Martha's Vineyard, Nantucket, all of these iconic American destinations, which is what our parents wrote about. And I think what we've tried to do is just understand what's going on at those places and seeing the trends. There are trends. And so like, you know, like, for example, what I'm wearing right now is, you know, is a woven shirt, but it's made out of a performance material. It's stretchy. You can wear it under a tie. You can wear it on a boat and it dries in two seconds. You don't have to get it dry cleaned. So it's evolving that classic look. And then also seeing what people want. One of the big initiatives that we have in our brand is doubling our women's business. We found that 70% of the people that walked into our store were women between the ages of 35 and 60. And um, they were not buying for themselves. They were buying for their husbands and their kids. And so the idea was we have this traffic. Why not give them something that they want for themselves? That's how we continue to evolve. We really have so much, when we look at our sales versus with some of these other brands like a Ralph or a Tommy or whatever, there's so much blue water ahead, not only in clothing, but other categories as well. On the COVID crisis, you uh, closed two weeks in March when you saw what was unfolding. What do you see ahead for retail for you? Have, is this crisis, other than coping with the immediate crisis, changed your strategy outlook? And what do you see for the industry? So we say that um, tough times don't last, but tough teams do. And so we took a pretty measured approach. We put our customers and our team safety uh, over everything else. We all took pay cuts. We closed our stores for months. And we've just gotten through this the best we can do. You know, huge kudos to our, you know, our bank group that helps us our manufacturers that help us, our team that's stuck by our side, and we're gonna get through this. And there's nothing else we can do except for wake up and do our best. So we mentioned, you know, 08, 09, the financial crisis. Uh, that was a very tough time for a lot of people. And it was a challenging time for us too. But we saw it as an opportunity to, you know, get a whole bunch of new stores open and leases and put people to work who didn't have jobs. And we did that. And there's a lot of opportunity now as well. Uh, we do have some leases that we've had for a while that are coming to an end that were very high dollar leases. And we're seeing retailers who, you know, really want to have a strong brand in their in their arsenal. And so we're getting some percentage rent deals that are really no risk to us and, you know, can put our brand in some places where we wouldn't normally be. You know, like you said, this COVID particularly has really accelerated people's uh, online shopping versus brick and mortar. So what, what does, what do the retail stores become? Did the footprints become smaller? Um, and is there a higher level of service that we can offer to people in store, you know, more curated shopping, um, more niceties to our loyal customers, and um, by niceties you mean uh, whether it's you know giving me a call ahead of time to say hey, the new stuff came in and I I put this aside for you. I know your size. I know your color preference. I know how old your kids are. I, I know that you 
are into this type of stuff and it's all put aside for you. If you come on in, we can make sure that it's you know clean and safe or we can bring it to your house or that type of stuff. True high level clientele. Yeah. Or like, you know, we're for our, our best customers who haven't been to our stores because of COVID um, you know, we're, we're actually, we approved it today. We're sending them a gift card just for saying, thank you. You, you know, your support during this tough time has helped a family business and team you know, stay in business. And so just, you know, George Bush once sent us a note and said, kind, we sent him some neckties and said, kind gestures uh, sure mean a lot and yours were greatly appreciated. We went to a school where we had to wear a sweater with a patch that said, courage, honor, truth. And with all thy get and get understanding. And I think if you live your life by those sorts of virtues and with, with strong character, um, and doing the right thing, people notice. And so that's what we wake up every day and try and do. So what, uh, what is different today starting a business, would you speculate, from uh, starting a business in 1998? Is it uh, harder? Is it, could you do today what you uh, did 22 years ago? Well, there's a lot of noise out there, right? Because everyone has a platform. It's easy to, to talk to people. It's funny, people ask us, you know, how, how did you do it? You know, what did you do? And the reality is we were too stupid to know it couldn't be done. <laughs> and, and we sort of figured it out as we went. And I got to imagine that, that there's a way to do that again today and, and to, to break through all the noise. But there's definitely more noise now. You, all you need to do is go down the, the aisles at, at Whole Foods and pick up any package. And it says, you know, I wanted to make honey, but I couldn't find a honey that I liked. So I made my own honey and it's, you know, this is my brand. And, and every, pretty much every category of, of product is like that. What we're seeing today is that the brands that stand for something more than just their product are really the ones that are resonating with, you know, customers, you know, all generations, but, but it's becoming increasingly important to uh, younger generations. What do you see as the future of uh, startups? Yeah, I, I, I think there's so much opportunity today. It's going out and, and figuring it out what that looks like. I think the great thing about the future is that it's never been done before. And in retail, it's evolved so quickly. What Ian and I and our management, our leadership team want to do is evolve. You know, Steve, I, I'll, I'll add to that. One thing that I want to mention as I reflect back on the hour we're spending together, the brand is is way bigger than us. And the opportunity is bigger than what the two of us are able to do. And so when you think about the the life cycle of brands, you know, it's our goal that this brand is a strong brand for a long time. And one of the ways we try to make sure that happens, uh, and, and in our opinion, this should be the basis for pretty much any organization. Um, we have three company goals and they're pretty universal and they can be applied anywhere. Uh, one, make Vineyard Vines a great place to work. Yes. Employees t first. Take great care of your people. Um, make sure they're having fun. Make sure they feel fulfilled uh, and, and that, that they want to do what they do. Two, have a great customer experience. You know, and, and then three is drive profitable sales growth. And it's got to be in that order. Uh, it, it can't it can't be the other way around. And so as we think back about driving a great customer experience, which is which can be hard to do, you know, in these unique times, you know, we, we've shifted our, our business a little bit. You know, people are not buying 
blue blazers and neckties and dresses the way they they might be, you know, entering the holiday season. But they are buying more comfy stuff to wear at home, you know, and and showing how uh, you can still look nice on your Zoom call and, and you you can be comfortable. Um, you know, there, there's so much that you can do with fabrics these days that you know look great but also feel great at the same time. And so we're leaning into those things. So you know, I think as as we think back on this, you know, time whether it was 20 years ago talking with you or or today. It, it's the same thing. Have fun and make sure your team is having fun with you. You know, and it's a great place to work. Make sure the customers are along for the ride and they feel included. They feel like there's a dialogue, like we're listening to them. And and lastly, you know, keep an eye on the business. Make sure it's profitable uh, so that you can keep doing all those things. Shep and Ian, thank you very much for your time. It was great to have you uh, for this session. Very enlightening. And uh, thank you. Thank you for the time. Thank, <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Steve. Great to see you. Thanks for listening to What's Ahead. I'm Steve Forbes. Looking forward to next week. And if you could rate, review, and subscribe to this show, we at Forbes sure would appreciate it. 